Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Michelle Gerber-Klein. She is a philanthropist, collector, and author whose topics are fame, fashion, and art. Her first book is Charles James' Portrait of an Unreasonable Man. It's a biography of the iconic and controversial designer, Charles James. It's a really great read and has an interesting genesis. There was a discovery of some long-overlooked interviews conducted just before his death decades ago, which provided the inspiration for this first biography of the visionary designer who has so impacted fashion in ways that touch all of our lives and we don't even realize it. He's the fascinating subject of this great book, which we had a great conversation about. I give you Michelle Gerber-Klein. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You have written a wonderful book about Charles James' portrait of an unreasonable man. Now, are you the subtitle being fame, passion, Fame, fashion, art. Now, are you drawn to the unreasonable? If, like, I mean, this is a this is a colorful personality who seemed charming and insufferable at the same time. I mean, what, I mean, what is it? I mean, what makes you want to write a book about Charles James? Other than, of course, your own fashion background. Oh, it was such a challenge because um, <clears throat> there was very little about Charles himself. Uh, that was factual, and there were lots of stories. Most of the stories centered on how eccentric he was. Um, that's why it's Portrait of an Unreasonable Man, because actually he was so incredibly influential in fashion and in cultural history that I found this quote from uh, Shaw from A Man in Superman that said, there, and therefore we depend on unreasonable men to change the world. So I thought that makes sense, that, that it makes sense of how strange he was and how effective he was at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think you think about people like Frederick Nietzsche, right, who's a genius, but was, seemed like just a, a, a difficult person. <laughs> and, and James seemed very, like, it, it seemed that he could be incredibly sweet, charming, a, a guy oh, could that could be. really ingratiate himself with others and connect with others, mm-hmm. and, and yet also could hold grudges, and, and, and really, it seemed like he had these ongoing kind of tortured but interesting relationship. <laughs> some of them were tortured, some of them were less tortured. I think as a child he had a very tortured relationship with his father and, and that was certainly an ongoing tortured relationship. Um, he could be very ingratiating, he could be very charming, uh, he was very personal in everything he did and so if you didn't weren't respectful of one of his inventions. He took it personally. It wasn't a business for him. He treated his practice the way an artist would treat their practice. He wanted money. He liked inventing business theories, but he did not run a business. Yeah, he didn't seem like a skilled businessman. In fact, I mean, you talk about well, he in was, the book. His 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 he had great ideas, but his books were a mess. He would he was always kind of. It amazed me too. As I'm reading it, that I'm just thinking he's traveling back and forth, you know, all over the Atlantic and stuff, and constantly with no money. I mean, I, you know, I get nervous if I don't have fifty dollars. I'm going to New York. It amazes me how this guy could just go back and forth with very little money and kind of make it and make a go of things. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how he did that. He was quite good at wheedling money out of other people. I think. <laughs> 
he just knew how to do it. He, um, he came from a family that was really rich. I think there were some tensions in his family about money. The mother had more money than the father. The father lost some of her money. Actually, he lost a lot of her money twice. Uh, his father had a military background, too. Was a mil- well, his grandfather was the person who got Winston Churchill into military school. Oh, wow. So, yes, and, and was one of the founders of Sanders. So they had a very famous military background. And he, you, you quote him here. He says that his father always made him feel that he was an imposter. So his, that his life has been a succession of acts to prove I was, through my work, a real person, not a straw man. Not a straw man, which is really... That, that expression really got me. Yeah, he was constantly trying to prove himself to his, his father and not compete with his father at the same time, which is really hard to do. Yeah, I remember when Howard Stern was interviewed by Pierce Morgan, he said that you know, he knew... His father like didn't pay attention to much as a kid, but his father was a radio engineer, and he was always fiddling with the radio in the car. And he mm-hmm. said, if I could get in that box, my dad would love me and pay attention mm-hmm. to me. So, I mean, he very consciously is so Freudian. <laughs> but, yeah, it's interesting because with James, it's, it, it, there is this fa- fatherly I- image. But, yeah, he's not, he doesn't want to be like his dad. No, but, but he, in some ways he attempts to vindicate his father. Um, and, um, his father hated him so much that I came to the conclusion, which may not be fair or true or right, or, but, but that his father was probably gay and not showing it, pretending that he wasn't. Although it's clear that his father also really loved his mother, so that's... A, but, um, and I think Charles is coming out of the closet at a time when it was really dangerous to come out of the closet. I mean, Oscar Wilde was, was still a very vivid memory in England where he grew up. Um, was a way of standing up for what he knew his father really was. And this is, he comes out when he's at Harrow, right, at the yeah. school, that his father actually eventually... Took him away from It him. sounds like he was in a great time. I mean, he yeah. seemed to make... This photo you have of him as, as, <laughs> as Puck. Yeah. Midsummer, I mean, he, he's, he's got lovely legs. He's a good-looking guy, and he just he seems, he seems elated and happy there. <laughs> I think he had a wonderful time there, yeah. You have this great quote of him, you know... It, it, you say that, um, that he viewed homosexuality as a natural state of being, and adding bluntly, you're either sexual or you're not. And he was clearly on the sexual side of the line. <laughs> he was definitely on the sexual side. And very interested in it, and very interested in expressing it in different ways, including his clothing and his, in, his clothing inventions. All of his clothing is, is about, he said it, all, all, um, all fashion is a rehearsal for propagation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, he, it's interesting too that you you record that he actually noted years later after he left Harrow that his father had someone rape him. That it to was pull uh, up his socks. Yeah, uh, uh, under his own command. Like his father, this yeah. was just an, uh, to make a man out of him or something. Yeah, that, to pull up his socks. This is uh, you can imagine it, but it's really awful to imagine. I, I couldn't imagine. I mean, and he couldn't. So, yeah, it was around the time that, that he and he wasn't, that he took him out of Harrow, and then they sent him to, to Bordeaux, and they said, okay, now you can study music, and he just couldn't do it. Yeah, I, it's very, very sad. But one of the things about Charles's life is it's also an, a vindication of his creativity, because even though he couldn't do it in music, somehow he found a voice someplace else. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting. You say early on, this is this is the great <laughs> sentence. 
He's, he's a perfect blend of beautiful manners and dreadful behavior. <laughs> and that, so he remained an escort at high society balls until, according to Coleman, he enjoyed the notoriety of getting kicked off the debutante lists. <laughs> well, that, that was very much of the period, you know, yeah. I'm sure he was really good at that. <laughs> and he, I mean, so his first, you know, he moves to Chicago, right? And he's, he's kind of a, an assistant for someone in business, but then... No, no, no. He's, he's not kind of an assistant for someone in business. He is the assistant to the man who owns Con Edison in the United States, who was Tom... Was it Tom... Who invented electricity? Yeah, yeah, Thomas Edison. Yeah. It, well, he was Thomas Edison's personal assistant, this guy that Charles worked for. And and he, he did Charles the favor of making him his personal assistant, and Charles didn't care. He wanted to be himself, and he wanted to design clothes. And eventually he opens up a hat, hat store. Well, when his father went to join the, the company, he didn't want to be in the same company as father, so he ran away and started making hats in somebody's basement. And, and, he, and you know, that he, we don't know at this time, he seems to have had no formal training in design. None. He He's self-taught. Self-taught, kind of creative genius, and just starts making hats. Well, he had a friend who was sort of the bastard son of an English duke who had... Created Don't we all have one of those? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should have a friend in our classes. Of an English duke. Everybody needs that. Um, <laughs> anyway, this guy had made quite a little splash in London by making hats, and so I think the guy sort of showed him how to do it. So he got an idea of how to do it, and then he came up with the idea that hats are like hair, and what he'd do is he'd make the brims. So they they look good on each person's face. So it was like he was a hat hairdresser kind of thing. It was a novelty, and everybody in Chicago wanted to go and have their hats made by Charlie. And then after he's a couple shops in Chicago, right? Yeah. And they, they and then he eventually the, goes to New York. Well, no. Then he tried. Well, so then he has some affair, and it's very unclear what affair it is. And then he decides he's going to commit suicide, and he stages this very dramatic suicide by candlelight with ether. And, and, and it, he burnt his nose, with yeah, ether, right? right? Like he's right, and they started screaming, and they took him to the hospital that his grandfather had founded. And I don't think it went over in Chicago society very well. So. Fowler McCormick, who was who owned International Har- Harvester, gave him, I think it was $25 to get out of town. And he just got out of town with $25, and his hats pa- piled in the back of his car, and he drove to New York. And he sets up shop. And he set up shop. He, he ran into Cecil. He, con- he reconnected with Cecil Beaton, who had been his friend at Harrow. And Cecil was just starting to write his first uh, column for Vogue, and Cecil helped him out. You know, it, it's interesting because you, you, he originally was going to write a book about his own life, right? The, the courtier, um, mm-hmm. about, or, or as, as a life, uh, he was going to write a book about all these clients he'd worked with, all the people mm-hmm. he did. And, and that's sort of how you structure the book. I mean, there's, there's every chapter, there's a woman featured who was, who was an epic sort of person in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, you can sort of trace his life. Mm-hmm. by these women who he's designing right. for. And you sort of picked up on his own idea, that, that this was sort of his, this is the way he thought his his biography should be told. Yeah, I did, because he had never done it, and because it was a logical way to structure Charles James' biography, not only because he designed around the women and he allowed the women to have such an influence in what he created, but also because... 
they add color and 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 substance to what he talks what he has to say about himself if if you think of who we are in history we really are the history of people we knew and people we impacted. We don't exist alone. So these are the people that he had major relationships with. And then, of course, there's some others thrown in along the way. But yeah. Yeah, and he, I mean, he. it's interesting because you quote him as saying that fat, he, he's not really a designer. The designers are kind of, he's, he's higher than that, right? The courier kind of job is his... No, he's a think tank. He's an inventor. He's a creator. Right. And, and these, he doesn't view most designers as this kind of thing. No. They're, they're kind of... They um, change hemline lengths. Yeah. He invents. He's an architect. New clothing they're, they're draftsmen. Yes, absolutely. And he thinks that way. It's a very, it's sort of a, a niche... How do you say Nietzsche? What would you say Nietzschean? How how would you say that? Uh, I it, guess Nietzsche. It, I guess Nietzschean. I would say Nietzschean. Nietzschean. I guess. Yes, yes. He has a Nietzschean view of himself. Aristocratic. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> That's great. The Ubermatch. Um, and, and then the the uh, the uh, the his the fashion guys would be the last man, I guess. Who <laughs> Nietzsche? Yeah, did the right. Book was. Right. So yeah, that, I mean that's that's very interesting. So he, you you know it's funny because you talk about how how his dresses were pretty expensive, and yet he, he said something like at one time like his gowns were selling for like twelve hundred bucks or something, mm-hmm. again, which decades ago was a lot of money, and yet he said that a courier shop costs five hundred grand to run. I mean, like, it's right, like yeah. the, the, you had this sense in which he's not doing this to make money; he's doing it to create an impact to change the way we see clothing, to say, change the way we think about ourselves, and to change the way women think about beauty. He expects money, he wants money, but he wants it to be given to him. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's intriguing. So, I mean, he, so he wants to, I mean, he's incredibly influential. Hugely. And, and yet, my guess is that if, you, if we walk around the streets of New York, a lot of people wouldn't know wouldn't know his influence, even though they've been influenced. I mean, they wouldn't know that, how, the degree to which no. the world they indwell is shaped by his own creative Well, legacy. if you walk around the streets of New York in winter, everybody's wearing a quilted jacket, and he invented that. They wouldn't know that. And the taxi dress. The ta- well, the wrap dress, no, they wouldn't know that. He made the first dress, one of the first dresses. With a zipper, they wouldn't know that. No, it, and, and he would dress- be really upset about that, actually. <laughs> he wouldn't get credit for it. Yes. <laughs> I love the description of the taxi. It just wanted to be so sexy. He could imagine you getting in and out of it in the backseat right. of a taxi. You can make love in the backseat of a taxi, put your dress back on, and go on about your business. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it re- was he the inspiration for the character in The Phantom Thread? Um, Which is, did you see the film? I did, and I liked watching the film because it's beautiful to watch. Certainly the story is not the story of Charles sure. James's life. Um, the, the haircut is sort of Charles James. The first dress is a dress that he designed. It's, the, it's called the tulip dress, so the first dress in that film. So I thought, oh, well, Charles James won the Academy Awards. That's nice. <laughs> he would but, have probably said that too. <laughs> oh, he would definitely have said um, um, but the, the personality is eccentric, but Charles, I think, was eccentric in a different way. And Charles was very definitely gay. This man in, in, in the film is not gay. He's just strange. You know? um, I think it's Hardy Amos. Mm. 
I think is closer to Hardy Amos's life than it is Charles. But it's a it's a it's a compound of of a bunch of people, and Charles is definitely in there. So it's a, yeah, like a composite sort of yeah. And I thought also the redemptive kind of love story seemed not. That's it, not Charles yeah, at all. I mean, it, it's not the relationship he had with his wife. You know, he did not need to have himself redeemed, and uh, he loved his wife for other reasons. Yeah, and they, and even after they kind of separated, he was still very close to the kids. I mean, talked to them on the phone. I mean, they they you say is you know is adult. I mean, they they have a fondness for their father to this day. Yeah. Oh yeah, they do. I mean, his daughter definitely loved him. So I mean, what's What's the motivation for a guy that is, you know, has come out as gay to get married? It's very interesting to to get married to a woman after you've come out and you're pretty public about your. Mm. <laughs> well, she knew. I mean, it wasn't as though he was pretending that that he wasn't gay to her. So he was honest in that regard. Um, I think he wanted to be married, and and he said, "I wanted to be married." There's nothing so strange about that. Why wouldn't he want to be married? Why wouldn't he want to have a family if he could do both? Why not? Yeah, why not? I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you can have your cake and eat it too. I mean, this is... Yeah. I've never understood that phrase. Like, I've always wanted to eat my cake when I've it. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know why, that, why you'd want to have cake and not eat it, but um, that's very strange. That was, anyway, that was his point of view. I think he wanted to have a family and children. He loved children. And, you know, it's interesting. You, going back to his own design work you said you know that you write that not all of his experiments were successful everybody even mary hutchinson was one of his favorite clients particularly because she understood that by buying from charles she was not so much ordering clothes as patronizing the arts would write charlie was sometimes so entranced by the shape he was sculpting over one's own shape that when the dress arrived finished it was impossible to get into it. <laughs> it yeah, so, so, <laughs> it was hard. Much to get time into. then spent in discerning the proper relationship between shapes. And he, I mean, you you would type like he, him cutting the underwear off of people that he are. are yeah, that's what all of her muscles said he did. Well, he had this kind of Dick, Dickinsonian sense of humor. He was very. Uh, he was very slapstick and 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 quite you know he there was a furrier that wouldn't pay him money that that he, that he was owed and he took a bag of moss and threatened to release it in the furrier's storeroom. Yeah, and didn't he didn't he take like roaches right and throw them on the counter of the Delmonico Hotel when he didn't want to pay the rent? <laughs> and it sounds like it's also, actually disgusting, but he, it's he, sort of funny. And he had these like. He was famous for these like leaking baths, right? These baths he's taking in this hotel he's living in at the Chelsea Hotel. It's being kind of the terror to the uh, people below charged. him. Yeah, like. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught? frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe would you do something for me would you consider becoming a patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and you'll continue to enjoy again 
any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravitz, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. He he was the kind of person I imagined that did pretty much as they felt that what they he did what he wanted to do. And you know you you know that like, a big point for him a, a big point of sort of achievement was was when Christian Dior was hitting the scenes and and pretty much explicitly says that Charles this is my inspiration for this. Well, it, it was it his inspiration. It. Yeah, yeah, it was and. Uh, yeah, that was a very high. That was a high point in his career because then everybody knew who he was. He had he, he was well known always in a certain circle of people, a pretty recherche circle. But the new look hit, hit everybody. So yes, absolutely. And he also had this interesting. I mean, you write about him as an interesting, but he has this entrepreneurial mind. He can't. Again, he doesn't manage businesses that well, but he's entrepreneurial and creative. He's totally entrepreneurial and 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 very creative and really smart and 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 can think up concepts. He's just bad at details. I think either they bore him or it's not his focus. And he had this really interesting idea where he would sell a dress to the department stores. Mm-hmm. And then they would have the rights to copy it and make less expensive versions of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so he, it's just like, I mean, he kind of invents that yes, marketing and he, model. He invents that ver- very early on in his career in, in the uh, late 20s, early 30s. He's the first person to do that. Not only that, he merchandises the haute couture next to the less expensive models, which makes it possible for somebody to buy both and makes the less expensive models much more attractive. It's interesting that you, I mean, you describe at several points in the book his own sense of style. And he, he did seem like a sty- kind of eccentric but stylish. I mean, you know, there's, he's got a, quite a sense of his own. I mean, it's funny that as I was reading the book, I was thinking of Nietzsche's quote. Nietzsche said that there's nothing so important as developing a personal sense of style. <laughs> did he really say <laughs> he that? He did say that. that. He said there's nothing, yeah, he said there's nothing more important. Um, well, so there is a link between these two people. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know if James would have liked um Nietzsche's mustache, but I, I was, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I wonder, as someone who's been in the fashion world, mm. do you think about what you're wearing a lot? Do you think about people, you know, is there a pressure to be stylish? If like you're a physical trainer and you're not in great shape, people are thinking, well, that's kind of strange. You're tra- I mean, is there pressure as someone that's written about fashion, been in fact, to, to do, do you feel self conscious about, okay, well, I mean, do I look good today? Yes. I've I mean, bad you, hair day. This is this is by the way the audio. So you do look lovely today. Your outfit is oh, thank you. wonderful. But <laughs> so I mean, do, but is there kind of do you get self? I care or? about how I look. I've always cared about how I look. Uh, I'm half French, so that may be part of it. The pressure doesn't come from the world I work in. Um, the world I work in comes from what I'm interested in. 
So you had. So I was always interested in how I looked and how other people looked, and what one could do to one's appearance to change other people's perception of whom was who you are. Uh, and so that was that dictated my career to a large extent. I wonder, do you think people all think about that? Like, I, like I, do, I think they do. They just think about it in different ways. So not everybody is interested in haute couture. And I have a personal trainer who doesn't know who Harper's Bazaar is. But she cares about how she looks. She just doesn't look in the fashion magazines. She looks online or she looks in her phone or she looks at her friends, you know, and, and she creates her own sense of style. But it's not that she doesn't care how she looks and she doesn't care how other people perceive her. It's interesting because the world you write about, like all these fascinating women and these kind of patron figures in James Lee, mm-hmm. I mean, that world of that, again, it's interesting because like you said, all these styles, that, like the dresses with the first zipper and the large, all these things that, but there seems to be such a disconnect between the, 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 the world that you're writing about and the average person who it filters down to. Like it seems like a big kind of... You mean in, in what they wear or in who they are as people? Yeah, well, in, with the, in, in the sense that, like, you know, these these clothes designed for that, are per, they're, they're like pieces of performance art. I mean, it, they are pieces of performance art. That's exactly right. That's precisely what they are. But if you're a girl getting dressed up to go to a prom, you're performing too. I mean, everybody does that. I don't know if everybody's mindful of doing that. And women, by and large, have an easier time doing that than men if they choose to do so, because it's now it's more condoned in our society for women to to dress up than it is for men. But everybody does. Even if you're only, you know, even if you're wearing sneakers all the time, you pick out the sneakers that you think are cool, that you like, yeah. You think about it. I almost—I mean, ne- try to never go out socially in sneakers. Very, <laughs> that the Seinfeld look doesn't work for me. I think it's a little too—it's <laughs> a little too pedestrian. Not that I'm an elitist, but you know, it's—it's uh, <laughs> it's a little pedestrian for me. But um, sneakers are for working out usually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I—I I went to an exhibit a few years ago in Philadelphia at the Art Museum. It was called um, "Fashion into Art," mm-hmm. and it was an Italian dressmaker. I forget who it was. I think. Um, they were talking about he, he, by the end of his life, he was making sculptures that were dre- like dresses that were kind of sculptures. They were not designed to be worn. Um, That's interesting. What what was his period? It was twentieth century. I mean, he, like he was. I can't think of the name now. But it was called the, okay. the exhibit was called Art into Fashion. It was exquisite. But I, and some of these dresses mm-hmm. were on display that were never meant to be worn. They were and, and as I was looking at some of the sketches, they mm-hmm. were actually. I couldn't tell they were dresses. They looked like sculptures. But then you could see that, oh, okay. It wouldn't be obvious to me that the medium was cloth. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you see that. That's, you know, that's what's fascinating to me as you, as you write about change. I mean, there's the sense in which there's these art concepts. Uh, and then cloth becomes the medium for these things that are ex- really exquisite original pieces of art. They are pieces of art, but they're pieces of art about clothing. So that's his problem. Like, all artists pose themselves a problem. His problem is, what is clothing? So he's not trying to take it outside of its realm. He's trying to take it beyond fashion, which is a completely different thing. So everything he makes has a specific topic. Sometimes it's about the body and movement, 
big skirts that are calibrated to sway when the person walks, the wearer walks. Sometimes it's about the body and sexuality, you know, the dress with the, the vagina on the front or, or, or the, um, the little round rolls on the back. Sometimes uh, it's about how we relate to animals uh, in, in nature, like the swan dress or the rose dress. But it's also always connecting uh, the wearer to the outside world and separating the wearer from the outside world as well. Then he wants them to be put in museums so you can look at them and talk about them. But he makes them so they can be worn. Not every day, you know, they're not. You know. He predicted blue jeans, so he, he believes that clothing should be utilitarian. Yeah, and he actually, that was one of his, he had this, you write about this ingenious scheme he had, right, where he would make these dresses and make copies and you would, he could they'd donate one to the museum and you could write it off in your taxes and then make you a copy. How did that work? Uh, it didn't, but I'll... <laughs> <laughs> creative, though. I, uh, it's very creative. I mean, it's a, it's a great... It's I mean, it's kind great. of a great, like, little like, ploy. I mean... Uh, uh, he came, his family's fortune, and I think Millicent Rogers' family's fortune, too, to a certain extent came from a time when income tax was a relatively new thing. So he didn't want to pay income taxes ever. And he figured out this this scheme that he would charge her, he would make two dresses, she would pay for both of them, she would give one to the museum and write it off but but he would he would tell the museum that it was worth twice as much as it was, so she would take a double tax deduction, and then he would give her the other one for quote unquote free, free, and write it off his books, and she would have a dress, and the museum would have a dress. Does that make sense? Right, and then he would get his stuff in the museum, and it's like right. that, and, and right, then exactly. Yeah. But it didn't kind of work in the, the sense IRS of found out. Kind of. One of these numerous setbacks. That, that can <laughs> yeah, too bad. <laughs> you know, see, it seems like what could make him difficult is he—he he seems to have had no fear. Fearless. So it, it, fearless. This is tough to go into business with him, or it's tough to even be in front in, in certain kinds of relationship because if if things go sour. You you don't know what he's going to do, or you don't know what sort of decisions he'll make, or you, just because he's not he's not tethered by some of the normal anxieties and social conventions and other things that m- more of us might be restrained by. He's tethered by different anxieties <laughs> and different different conventions. What he really cares about is his work. You know what he's going to do. He'll just go on to the next idea. Right. And, He'll and get that, money from somebody else and yeah, get on to the next moving, idea. That might mean moving. It might picking up moving yes. somewhere else in, in the country or to another country. Or, yes, absolutely. And he'll just kind of do that so he can keep doing his work. Yes. And if you kind of, you know, I, I do think of, this is where he seems like the character in the, in the Phantom Thread. He's just kind of, you know, when somebody gets tiresome and blocks them creatively, you get, you know, his sister gets get rid of them. You know, get rid of this. The sense in which... The work is what I'm living for, and if you become an impediment to that, you you got to be moved. you go you you got it's it I mean, yeah that's absolutely how, yeah that's tough to be to develop intimate relationships in some ways. Although again, he had deep relationships. Yes, but they're focused on the work. Th- these women are part of his work life. He's making clothes with and for them. They're part of his creativity. They're like muses. I don't 
don't really know what a muse is. Um, I, I, it's, it's a term that's that's battered about the fashion world, and I never really understood them. They're partners in different ways. Each one has a they each one has a different partnership. But they're people he bounces ideas back and forth with. They're people whose whose bodies, you know, he molds clothes on. Uh, they're people who want the same thing he wants to to be as beautiful and as noticeable and as distinctive and as memorable as possible. Is there a favorite one of these partners? I mean, you write about several of them in in the book. I mean, is there one that stands out to you? Is 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 that she was you know one of the best ones or, or particularly? generative for him his favorite one was millicent rogers he, he thought she was incredibly generous and um elsa Scaff- he likes generous he likes generous <laughs> <laughs> generous is good for him <laughs> very good uh but she was personally generous as well as financially generous and he, he says that she brought out the best in everybody who was around her so because he liked her, she's a favorite. I like his wife, too. I think his wife doesn't get enough credit. I mean, here is a woman that you think of as not a very imposing woman, and yet he designed some of the most important clothes he's ever made for her. Uh, very modern clothes. You met him twice. Didn't you? Didn't... I never met him. I met him through these tapes. I didn't even know who he was. I was living in Canada in the 50s, and I was really little, so in his heyday, he was not part of my life. And uh, by the 70s, when when I was sort of coming into my own, he was past his prime. Didn't something? Didn't somebody give you something, though, that he did or something? Yeah, the, the, he made these tapes at the end of his life with an artist who was part of Andy Warhol's circle called Anton Parrish and Corey Hay, who was also part of Andy Warhol's circle at the time. He was uh, one of the people who interviewed for interview. Right, and, and you, these are hours of these tapes. They right? were hours and hours and hours of these rambling tapes, and, and they gave them to me, and they said, do something with them. So I watched them for a couple of years, and I tried to figure out who Charles James was. And finally, it started percolating. And do, so do, do you, it's weird because in some sense you know him, even though you never knew him. You do, I mean, you have this... It was like fitting together a jigsaw puzzle, but yeah, now I think I know him. Because you, I mean, you... Spent hours, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours listening to pretty intimate, you know, his own disclosures. Yes, and, and watching the way he moved and watching his expressions and and looking at them and thinking at them, about them over and over again. It would take me a long time to. So all the nasty things he says about people, it took me a long time to figure out that, yes, that he was angry and they were nasty, but he also comes from the 1930s where they all did that and they thought it was super funny. It was the way they talked to each other. That's curious. I mean, like, it, 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 you mean in that kind of scene? In this yes, sort of... in, that, in that kind of world. And he's, I mean, again, you mentioned Andy Warhol as a big part of his, I mean, he's, well, he was he was a big influence on Andy Warhol. Yeah, I mean, and he just runs with people that were idea driven, thought leaders, mm-hmm. you know, creatives in every like in, in multiple right. kind of fields. I he mean, seems to find them walking down the street. He met Antonio Lopez in a restaurant. I mean, it's a strange kind of charisma. He's he, he had absolutely yeah. Again, and yet it's a strange sort of also could be kind of repugnant at times, and yet and yet also very charming. <laughs> Well, it was difficult, but you know, first of all, he's a foreigner. I mean, people forget that he was English, that he was an 
an aristocratic Englishman on 7th Avenue, and obviously those two forms aren't designed to get along perfectly. Um, he had a bad temper, and toward the end of his life he was drug addicted, which probably didn't help his personality at all. But what was, what was He went to Max Feingold, okay. Dr. Do, Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> <laughs> JFK went to him, too. They all went, too. It was very chic to go to him. And he gave you amphetamines and vitamins and something else. I don't know what the other thing was. And, and um, Charles became addicted. Do you, do you think, like, would you would you have been wanted to be his friend? I mean, if you... Would that you think? Do you think he would have hit it off and connected as friends if you had known him? Yes, but I'm not really masochistic, and um, are you generous? He would like. <laughs> I'm personally very generous. I don't know if I'm financially that generous. Because <laughs> that would endear him, <laughs> right? That would endear him. The people who gave me the tapes, and Roger Webster in particular, who was also involved in that tape-making process, thought I was the kind of person Charles James would like. I can't say for sure. But, but you seem to... Would I like him? I would certainly find him interesting. He's a brilliant man. Yeah, I mean... I like artists. I mean, I don't like having... I like having friendships with artists. I don't like having other kinds of relationships with artists because they're very difficult to be around because they have to be totally self-centered and they have to be totally centered on what they're making. It's like, you know, would you have wanted to be one of Picasso's mistresses? Absolutely not. So friend, like a casual friend, but not, you know, lovers, well, things like that. a friend, but not... Family a, members. No, 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 no. I think that would have been very tough for me. Yeah, there's a woman, Claire Detter, who's a memoirist and... She wrote an essay for the Paris Review, which she called, like, What to Do with These Monstrous, monstrous Men. Mm -hmm. Like uh, uh, Roman Polanski, Woody Allen. Woody, mm -hmm. and, and she says, say, you know, does every creative act, you have to be a little bit of a monster? Like the ego kind of thing. Or she talks about how much of my kids, you know, got, how much less of my kids gotten from me because if I'm pouring my creative energy. In it. And so, I mean, it is. Yeah. The, the ego of centrism, you're right. That kind of you is have to necessary be. to be a creative genius. Yeah, but you have to totally focus. And so if you're focusing on that, you're not focusing on your relationship. And your relationship is secondary. And, and you use people. And do you think part of that, too, is just the, the kind of ego you have to have to think that? You I, have to know that you're that good. And, yeah. and I have something that everybody else needs to see. Or read yes. it or hear or... Or you want everybody else yeah. to see it or read it or hear it. But then, that, again, is the generosity of the creative spirit. So it's both. It's egocentric and it's incredibly giving. Who do you think today are, 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 are the most interesting people in fashion? Is there anybody that's close to as interesting as, as James on the contemporary landscape? Well, fashion today doesn't lend itself to, to you know, John Galliano. I mean, but poor John Galliano. They didn't, the safety net wasn't big enough. Although he's now apparently doing quite well. I mean, John Galliano's clothes are unbelievably beautiful. It, it, I used to go to his runway shows in Paris, and that was sort of in the Jamesian tradition, conceptual art. And you would go then... I never bought any, but you, you would go to the haute couture showroom and you would look at the clothes and, of course, you, you would never wear that dress. But you could pick an element of that dress and the atelier would make out of that element an outfit for you. 
So uh, John Galliano is pretty close to that sensibility. In terms of, of clothing, though, you know, you can't say because Charles was so modern. What you really have to say is what is the most modern clothing that's being made now? What is the clothing of the future? That's where he would be, not in the clothing of the past. He would not be making b- big ball gowns now. Because that, but that, what he was doing then was cutting edge, but now. Right. People are, people are in his wake, I suppose. Yes, so. they're in his wake. And he would be charting the mm-hmm. kind of horizons. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, it, it, it seemed like the world he lived in, it, I mean, that fashion world seemed pretty exciting. I mean, it, it just, it, intellectually, culturally, it seemed mm-hmm. like an avant-garde. Yeah, it was very avant-garde. I, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like that's what you're saying, the, the, the world, the fashion world is quite like today. It, the fashion world is changing really rapidly. Let's see what it's like next year. <laughs> oh, do you have any predictions? Nope. <laughs> no, I can't predict. For people that... But the, the, see, the audience is changing. So it's not when he, when Charles designed, it was, it was the Western world. It was London, New York, Paris, essentially. Uh, and now we're dealing, we're, we are in a global economy and we're dealing with people that have a lot of money that, that, uh, that are interested in how they look, that are interested in fashion and have totally different ideas about what it is. So it's, it's going to take a while to learn all of it. I mean, there's emerging luxury markets and things. Right, like, right? Like, yes. You know, in, in... Right, well, the Chinese are huge luxury buyers. The Koreans are enormous luxury buyers. But they don't come from our culture, obviously. I mean... So it's going to take a while to figure it out. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about how that will change. I mean, I wonder for people that are listening to this who are who don't know the fashion world right very well. Um, but I mean, again, I I found your portrait of James just and the fascinating, and again, <laughs> the, the just sort of the you know it, 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 it's you know I mean, there's a German. Protestant thinker uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher in the early 19th century, and this book I read about him called *The Romantic Triangle*. It's all these salons in Berlin, and I think it was very exciting to read about. Like mm-hmm. the same kind of thing when I'm reading your book. It's it's exciting. I'm thinking, gosh, this is definitely they're vivid people. I, I, this I would have liked to you know engage with mm-hmm. them. This is this is exciting right. and 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 deep, and mm-hmm. there's profundity. And James is quoting Shakespeare, and mm-hmm. you know he's he's read philosophy, and I mean the guys these polymath kind of people. Yes. Uh, I'm wondering, like, how do you, how do people get into the world of fashion that are uninitiated? I mean, like, you know, th- th- are there things that? No, I think it's really affinity. One of the things when I worked in fashion, and I worked in fashion for quite a long time, that I really liked about the fashion world is that it was really on merit and and not on on background. It was people who had talent and and talent recognized talent and talent like being around talent and color like being around color and expression like being around expression. It was kind of what you knew, not who you knew. Absolutely. And do you think it's less like that now? Do you think it's more of a networking kind of business? I just think that, that it's, again, the, 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 the customers changed and to a great degree, the productions changed. So it's, just going to take a while to sort itself out. 
You mentioned earlier that it's more acceptable for women to dress up than it's for Yeah, men. it's one of the things I lament about our modern society. I think it's terrible that men don't have the 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 ability to express themselves creative, creatively in their clothing. And it's almost like, I guess, in the past couple of decades, somewhere it became more masculine to not care about what you wear. Right. right. If I just wear Dockers and a, and a, and a poor-fitting polo shirt, I'm manly. I mean, the right, shows, exactly. the shows are a man. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of... It's lame. It's daunting. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that will change? I hope so. Yeah, I do too. I hope that, you know, as we become more open-minded, that will change. Yeah, I mean, maybe we need more Charles Jameses to open us up. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with me, and your book was fantastic. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed reading it. Thanks so much for talking with me. Bye. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, Please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Michelle for coming on the podcast. Please do check out her book, Charles James, Portrait of an Unreasonable Man. You won't be sorry for doing so. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.